Welcome to We Belong Here, Lessons from Unconventional Paths to Tech. I'm your host, Lauren Lee, and I'm all about building communities, celebrating unique journeys, and sharing stories about the paths people have taken to enter the tech industry. Join me as we explore the skills my guests have learned in their prior jobs, schooling, or life experiences, and how they apply them to their current roles in tech. And in today's episode, be sure to listen until the end, as I've got a giveaway happening and you won't want to miss it. Today's guest is a freelance web developer, a women tech makers ambassador, and a co-organizer for GDG New Orleans. She's also a Google developer expert in web technologies and a Cloudinary media developer expert. As a developer, she loves building things that help make people's lives easier. Similarly, as a person, she loves making developers' lives easier through teaching, speaking, and mentoring. She's a frequent conference speaker where she talks about front-end topics such as web performance, JavaScript, and React. Her name is Sia Karamalegos. Sia, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. I'm so excited for this conversation. Let's start at the beginning, shall we? Sure. So tell me more about the experiences that you had before you entered the tech industry. Yeah, it's a bit of a long story because I'm a little <laughs> bit older probably than the average dev, but um, we'll start in college, chemical engineering major. Okay. Part of the backstory is to get into the engineering program at Texas A&M, you had to take two classes. One was AutoCAD and one was Fortran programming. Nice, <laughs> nice. I was the only woman in that class and they all hated me because I don't know why I was able to just like get it right the first time and which doesn't make any sense now because I like make all kinds of mistakes in my code. Um, <laughs> but they were all struggling with it and you were like, uh, got it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so basically a long time ago, I should have realized that that's the path for me. But instead, what I did was um, I learned about semiconductors and I was actually a semiconductor process engineer after school for a while. And then I realized that I wanted to better understand how businesses run, but also because semiconductor manufacturing in the U.S. was moving more overseas. Oh, so you saw that as a like, oh, I need a transition in this yeah. early part of Can we pause yeah. quickly to learn sure. more about what is a semiconductor process engineer do or do. what is it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah. know anything about I know, it. Right? Well, semiconductors are like the chips in your computers and game devices and phones. And I helped process those silicon wafers. So those are cool. the cut up into chips. But yeah, it's um, heavy duty industrial engineering. So like manufacturing processes and having to think about throughputs and bottlenecks and all kinds of stuff. But also the core processing. I was in the photolithography area. And so it's kind of like photography, actually. But we print patterns on wafers and then they get etched out. But yeah, so that was fun. What brought you to that piece in the first place? What drew you to that particular industry? And in undergrad, I was in chemical engineering in Texas, and I was right. like, I don't think I necessarily want to go to the oil industry or even like uh, chemicals. So one option was to actually specialize in microelectronics processing. Okay. So I did okay. that. Um, I don't know why. I feel like all of us probably could have used better guidance in undergrad as <laughs> no, to like, how to take a path, you know? <laughs> Sure, because it's sometimes like it may be a good class that you really are liking or you're connecting yeah. with the professor and they're really engaging. And so then suddenly you have a minor in marine biology and who knows? I know. But, yeah. I know. 
<laughs> yeah, so I, I wanted that in like junior high, the marine biologist. Oh yeah, I loved it because we went on a ton of field trips in college down to the port. And so I was like, oh, I get to hang out on the boat all day? Okay. I know. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, but the, okay, so I see. So you were pursuing that after school and then decided, okay, maybe business is a better direction for me to pursue? Yeah. So actually I have, I guess, mixed ethnic descent. I am half, I guess what you would call just a regular white person in America, (laughs) half Greek. And so I had these really interesting cultural dynamics in my family. And on my mom's side, the American side, it was people who worked engineering like jobs in oil and gas industry. So they're very, you know, that engineering mindset. And then on my dad's side, he was actually a small businessman and he, it was like the American dream. He came to America. He immigrated in the seventies and started from scratch there um, in a service station and then kind of earned money from there. So on the, on like the other side of my brain, I always had this curiosity more about like how business worked and how to be successful and maybe a little bit of that hustler mentality too. So I always wanted to also learn that better because I never got any of that education Uh in undergrad and, of course, not on the job in a big plant for fabricating semiconductors. (laughs) Exactly. So, okay, so you went and got your MBA and and you thought that maybe you would start a business around semiconductors or were you like ready to move on to something else (laughs) after that? Yeah, (laughs) I don't think I was quite... I think I was, I mean, this is an interesting question because it kind of brings up like how we're socialized. Yeah. Like if I would have done it all over again, maybe I would have realized that I'm more like my dad and I kind of like being independent, but I was mm. still maybe afraid to do that. And I think yeah. women are actually socialized that way to be more risk averse. And so I went into semiconductor capital equipment industry. So that's companies that sell this like really expensive heavy equipment to places that process semiconductors. And I was in corporate strategy and product marketing and roles in those businesses. So how to sell, make the marketing move, I see. And just like company direction and things like that, like cool. strategy. So helping them with that strategy. Interesting. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. And, and applied that MBA, I'm sure, really well also. Yeah, so that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah definitely. That's cool. Okay, so then I know coding didn't come next. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, there's some more. There's some more. So that was fun and all, but because, um, you know, it's really hard to transition in most fields. It's difficult to transition both your role and your industry at the same time. So that was kind of like my first step out of business school was like, I'm going to transition my role, but not yet my industry. But I still didn't necessarily want to, I didn't really want to be in the semiconductor industry anymore. So the next step for me was to actually go into management consulting so I could make myself more broad and learn about more businesses. I knew it was an industry where you could learn really fast, but you'd probably get burnt out fast. So I never had expectations to stay in it long term. But I did switch to management consulting. It was more operations and supply chain oriented. And I think that's kind of how my brain works, making more efficient processes, whether that's how a a semiconductor plant works or how a business runs or how a user needs to get their job done on a website, for example. I see. Yeah, really cool. Yeah, I went into management consulting after that. But then, of course, you hit like the burnout phase after about two years. And it was also the downturn phase, sadly. 
that was not a very good time. Oh my gosh. I see. So you, and you predicted that burnout moment though. You were like, I'm going to try oh, it for yeah, a little definitely. bit. Yeah, there was, so there was this interesting case in business school actually about, um, it was called like the profiles of the class of 1976 or something similar to that. And it's um, about this class of students. And then every, we have reunions every five years. And what they did is they asked these alumni to write about how their lives are going. And in the beginning, it's all very like, you know, hopeful and excited. I got this new job. It's great. And then, you know, it kind of moves on as they get older. You know, I got married. I'm a CEO of this company now or whatever. (laughs) And and then as it goes along, it gets more and more depressing. Because then it's like, by the end, it's like, you know, my wife has left me because, you know, most of of these are men. (laughs) My, My children hate me. And it's because like these people never really spent time with their loved ones or like, you know, exploring some of their interests in their life. And at that moment, even in business school, I was like, you know, I'm not going, I'm going to try not to ever let that happen to me. And I could see it already happening in management consulting. Like by the time I got home every Thursday night at like, you know, between midnight and 2am after my flight, I... I just didn't have the energy to go hang out with my friends on the weekends, sure. you know? So I was like, something has yeah, to so change. The balancing act wasn't there. Yeah. So that's when I was like, yeah, something has to change and maybe I should do it for a cause because, you know, you feel a little icky after just maximizing profits <laughs> for the last two years. <laughs> So that's when I went to public education. And before that, I was living, well, I lived in the Bay Area and also in Texas. And I knew a lot of activity was happening around public education in New Orleans at the time. It was like kind of like one of the first hot spots for education reform. And so I ended up getting a job there and I had to start a little lower. I was like a project manager for this project because I I didn't know education really yet. So I, you know, sticking to the skills that I already knew, which was how to manage a project. And um, it was a splendid learning project and it had funding from the Gates Foundation and it was exciting. And then I kind of transitioned from there in different roles and education here. Yeah, that's when I feel like the MOOCs started coming out. You know, those massive online, what a, I don't actually know what all the letters stand for. But that's when like the, you know, like, like uh, edX and MITx, yeah. those are kind of the initial ones. And Coursera yeah. was the early one also. Before the boot camps and stuff really came out. And I, I kept coming back to those. Like I, I took this Python course. And then I think I did this Udacity front end. I see. I guess at that point, you started playing around with code at that point and maybe yeah, decided yeah. to dabble, if you will, in it? Yeah, it was just dabbling on the side. I, like I wasn't taking it seriously at that point, but I kept doing it, which is weird. Like why would you do something on the side in your free time that you wouldn't ever take seriously? <laughs> totally. Yeah, I mean, why not see if the side hustle can be something more? We should listen to ourselves maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so how did exactly then you decide – or? I guess yeah, yeah. it wasn't a decision because you were just doing it as a side hobby, but how did you learn it? You were taking those programs that you found online. Yeah. And of course, like they're not really that engaging. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe I just kind of, you know, let it fall by the wayside, but then time went on and we had, or it's a program that's in a lot of cities. I don't know if it's still active called Startup Weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Familiar. Yeah. And I did that one year here in New Orleans and was with a team of people I didn't even know. But we ended up knocking it out of the park and winning it here in New Orleans. And one of the one of the prizes was like a discounted boot camp thing. And that's what I was like. I know. So I was like, well, 
it's so expensive, but maybe I should just do it for real if I keep coming to it on the side. So that's when I started for real, I guess, or like actually considering it. Yeah. When you started and decided to learn to code officially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like take it seriously as something I could do as a job. <laughs> okay. Very cool. So tell me about that then. Catch me up to speed too, because today you are the founder and lead developer at Clio and Calliope. Is that correct? Yes, that is. And I know that sounds funny. Um, so in New Orleans, we there's certain things that we say funny. And one of them is what most people would probably say Calliope and we say Calliope. But what's interesting is that that's also closer to the Greek, which is Calliope. And so I decided to use the New Orleans pronunciation and um, they're actually muses. So it's kind of like, it's got double meanings because we also have like the muses parade and there's several streets named after muses here. And I'm also Greek. So that's so cute. Well, even, I mean, before that though, you were a coding boot camp teacher. Yeah. I, and I, I worked also at a, a dev shop for a while and um, which I learned a lot, but it wasn't, <laughs> it was a bit of a, a bro environment. So there wasn't quite. When you were like in that strictly software engineering role. Yeah. 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 Um, and then I also taught at one coding boot camp and created a curriculum for another one. So yeah. I've also observed myself like wanting to build things, but also wanting to teach things. <laughs> so yeah. I, I've had this kind of dual role of, even though I don't have like some big company behind me, I feel like I'm part dev advocate and part developer. Exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. It's you're merging yeah. those two. It's very cool. How do you spend your days day to day now in, in your freelancing role? I... <laughs> do we want to talk about pre-corona or corona? <laughs> Ooh. That's a great question. Let's just <laughs> let's go pre, then let's talk about nowadays because that's a reality. Sure. If you don't I mind. would say, yeah, pre-corona. So um, one thing I will say, it is it's not easy necessarily to be a freelancer. And I will sure. recognize my privilege here. So my dad passed away several years ago from lung cancer. And he left us some properties, which we were able to sell. And so I have like basically a really small basic income. It's below the poverty line, but it's guaranteed. So I'm actually able to take a, li- a little bit more risk than most people would. And I wanted to be upfront about that because I know that not everyone has that opportunity and not everyone can necessarily try to do the things that I'm doing without putting a lot more other work in front. And, and of course, I, I also saved a lot through the years as well. So I was able to take more risk here. So back to the day-to-day, pre-corona, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> because of the way the freelancer lifestyle works, you kind of go into phases. Like maybe you'll have a heavy phase and that's when I'm doing like more client work and actually building things. And then I'll go into a low phase. And then that's usually when I build content and things like that. Like whether that's a, a new conference talk or I also teach workshops at conferences and I'm trying to convert a workshop to an online self-paced one so that people can do it anytime. So yeah, it would basically like ebb and flow between those things based on what my work was like at the moment. So yeah, (laughs) post-corona, most of my clients were the kind of businesses that like you have to have people come to your business. So that work kind of halted. And I actually started teaching a um, course on JavaScript at a local community college. So I've been building content for that and then, you know, doing office hours and things like that. But that's not generally what I normally do. I see. Um, (laughs) So, yeah. You're adapting. (laughs) It sounds like anything you are 
good at figuring out the current situation, how to make sense of it and roll with it. So yeah, yeah, like trying to stay nimble and keep going and Mm -hmm. yeah, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and stay motivated in isolation. (laughs) Sure. And how to yeah, get creative, I suppose, with how you're reaching your communities that you care about, too. Yeah, definitely. And trying to support them too. Like even with the students at the community college, I try to remember we're supposed to engage with them at least once a week, like via message. And, Mm -hmm. you know, just people don't always need only direction. They need support sometimes too. And um, I think now is the time we can definitely support each other. Definitely. That's super fair. So, okay. What would you say kept you from entering the tech industry before you did? All of your other curiosities, I suppose. Oh, yeah, I do have that problem, too. Like, I also, <laughs> I have two different <laughs> Etsy shops on the side. Like, I would create crochet patterns, and I have, like, figure drawings as digital downloads. So, yeah, I, I love it. Patterns. But I think it was, one, of course, is, you know, you go to college, and you have to pick a major, and maybe yes. that major doesn't necessarily align with, with the type of work that you really just get into a groove in. There's, like, another word for that, isn't there? You know, like when you don't even notice the time passing. When it's just like joyful work and it's flow. Flow. Yeah, it doesn't feel like a job and it feels like something you're fulfilled by. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And I think it's hard to find. And so, yeah, so that's part of it. Like just finding the fact that that was probably a better choice for me because I think it's not just yet that content but how I like working and maybe I do like I have that creative side and so I like the ability to be more creative and self-directed in my work and so being that freelancer and that whole women aren't really socialized to take risks I think that's the case here in the U.S. Definitely something there to that for sure. Yeah. It sounds like being in that strictly dev role wasn't fulfilling for the creativity part of it. And so you needed yeah. to find some, yeah, for the there's content part. Yeah, the content, like, yeah, exactly. Teaching other people or, I mean, not necessarily like teaching them live in the classroom all the time, but being yeah. able to balance both of those things and kind of build what I do around that is nice. It sounds like you found an interesting place for yourself where you get to balance all of your skills and things that you enjoy bringing to the table and be your full version of yourself also. Yeah. And how would you say your past as the semiconductor process engineer and someone working in public education and, and then as a coding bootcamp teacher, how has that all helped you in your role today as a freelancer? Well, there's a couple of things. Of course, you have to know the content. And so, right, like that's when you, whether you do your coding bootcamp or you learn online or you're in college course on learning how to code. But then there's how do you manage your own business? And then also how do you work with people effectively or even with yourself? And I think all of those skills I've, I'm bringing to what I do now. So understanding how business and accounting and finance and strategy all work, they help me be a successful freelancer. And also how to talk to clients and understand their needs and things like that, I probably got from being a management consultant. And of course, that probably fits more in that role of project manager or um, sales person if you're in, like, for example, a dev shop. But Mm -hmm. you kind of have to do all of those things. You have to be in all those roles when you're a freelancer or a small business, you know, dev shop. All of the hats. (laughs) Yeah, I think you also kind of learn over time, like how to mentor people more effectively and how to teach Mm -hmm. concepts, especially ones that are maybe difficult to conceptualize. And so kind of learning 
through all of the different roles I've had of how to do that um, has helped in terms of how to come up with content that's easier to understand. And actually being in public education, even though I was not a teacher, I paid attention to what they were teaching the teachers <laughs> yeah. in terms of like, you know, checks for understanding and things like that. And mm-hmm. I am very curious in like how we learn. And so I try to research ways and like, how do we actually learn things better? And some of that's like, you know, like spiral learning and teachers checking for understanding and applying those skills, like building things and stuff like that. So that's also been helpful, even though it was more through osmosis that I learned that. Yeah, I think that's really cool. Yeah. Can you share any life lessons you've learned from your transition to tech? Periodically stop and take stock of your life and whether it's bringing you joy. And I think actually what COVID-19 is actually forced a lot of people to do that right now as their lives have been upended. And so maybe don't wait for a pandemic to do that. Like take stock. Is your life going the way you want it to go? Are you happy with both your professional life and your personal life? And if not, like start exploring why and whether there are changes you can make and what's preventing you from making those changes. And some of those might be like, you know, very practical. There's like no way you could afford the other way. And so like, don't be hard on yourself. But if you can, like how, what is that way? And maybe that's, (laughs) maybe it's that hustler mentality too. Like I'm always like, how can I, how can I make this work? And just getting it done, you know? No, I love that. Don't let life kind of kick you in the pants. Try and get preemptive on it. and reflect and figure out what is going to bring you the most joy and be fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. But meditation reflection process is so important. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So can you tell me about a time that you felt like an outsider and maybe how you dealt with those feelings? So definitely, yes, I have felt like an outsider at times. I'll talk about this one first because I think it's going to be relevant for most people trying to enter this field. And that is feeling like there is so much to learn and you're just not picking it up fast enough or it's basically the imposter syndrome. Like you're never going to be good enough. I would say that eventually... Once you learn one thing deeply and you start talking to people you know in the field and you'll realize that everyone just knows what they know and there's yeah. there's no way to know it all. And so that's when you realize that like most of these people are faking it and they also are not that confident. And so you feel like an outsider at first, but then you realize that, I mean, there's a lot of posturing, but then but you're then you alone. do know what you know. Yeah, you're not alone. Every Yeah, because it's literally impossible to know it. Just keep, you know, learning the things that you have to for your particular career path or interests. You know, once you're an expert in one field, you'll finally realize that, yeah, it's <laughs> there's no way you can be that person that you thought that you should be in the beginning. Exactly. No, I think that's really fair advice. <laughs> And then, of course, on the other side, there's that even though women, of course, are 50% of the population, we are not minorities. But in this field, we are not fully represented and not always respected. And that happens in a lot of fields now that I've been in several of them. But I feel like a lot of it can be more overt in this one. And so I don't know if I have advice for that one, but I've definitely felt that way. And it's always a balance, right? Like you want to fight the fight when you can, but you also want to take care of yourself when you can't. And And that's going to be true for, of course, anyone that feels like an outsider because of any characteristic that they have that 
you know, isn't well represented. It's a great reminder though. We don't have to shoulder that responsibility on our own and we don't have to be the representative. We don't have to be the educators for folks that are not woke, right? Like we don't need to be exactly. the, the voice of all women if we're the only woman in the workplace or on the team. Yeah. They can do that work on their own and they should mm-hmm. find allies that are doing it well and learn from them. Exactly. Or maybe that is something I learned more recently within the past few years. You can't always fight it without causing harm to yourself. So Mm -hmm. take care of yourself and together we will get through it. Absolutely. And the the industry is shifting and changing. And every day I hear from new women that are entering the space and are getting badass roles and are shaking it up. And that's amazing. So I just, I like to like have a positive outlook on it and, and believe that we are championing an awesome cause and that soon it's not going to be as drastic of a difference. Yeah. It's very common for some people to be the only women on a team. I hope that's not. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I had that experience and not just in this industry. Oh, I bet as a chemical engineer, I bet you did. I bet as the semiconductor. When I was a management consultant, that was the first time I was the only woman on a team. There was actually a decent number of women in semiconductor process engineering. And even at Texas A&M and chemical engineering, I think our degree had about 50% women. And that was a long time ago. That's amazing. That's so cool. Well, and then what about your, your business program at Harvard? I've imagined that was probably. I think it was like maybe 30, 35. It might be better now. Yeah. But yeah, it wasn't like too terrible. We also get women exiting industry because there's always a pressure of childcare because that burden is put more on us. And they kind of expect you to already have three years of experience at that point. And so there's some natural deselection there. But um, I will also say one thing positive I have noticed about this in this space is I have noticed more people advocating for people who are underrepresented now. I see that more often when someone has, you know, said something inappropriate or or done something, I'm starting to see, for example, like white men calling it out too. And yeah. it really helped other people help advocate for us. And actually, I've used that in other roles too, because I will say I, I, I did have a sexist boss in public education, which is weird, because that was like all women. And one way I tried to manage that was actually like seeking help from other people. And it's hard to do at first if you're a very independent person. But if you can figure out how to get other people to advocate for you, it can take some of that burden off. No, absolutely. If someone that has the seat at the table and asking them to be a mentor, mm-hmm. support you in that way. And then, you know, it's a fun thing to be able to do later in your career and able to give back. So I feel like it's a duty oh, yeah, for definitely. Us. Yeah. So, okay. Well, normally this is when I ask if you have any advice for those wanting to transition into tech that you can share but I feel like you've given us a lot of advice so far. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely that. Don't feel bad if you feel like you're not smart enough or you never will be because you probably will. It's just... I know people look like they're all professional and it doesn't help when we make all of our videos and educational content like so perfect. Oh my gosh. In the videos I record, I'm trying not to make them perfect. Like I don't edit out my bugs because it's important to know that like, (laughs) I won't say 99% of our work, but a lot of our work is debugging stuff that we basically didn't do right the first time. Absolutely. And yeah, I think that learning to debug is a huge skill in itself and boot camps and programs don't, they're not able to give you that real world experience of it. And so to see that in videos Mm -hmm. like that, or I do a live stream every week and I try to be, I end up being way too vulnerable though. I think I teeter a little bit on, (laughs) did we actually build anything this week? No, 
And you know what? I think that's why I like live streams. I also watched like the Learn with Jason one. And it's great because you're like, you see the mistakes people have and it's okay, you know? Exactly. And you also see like all the other stuff that you never learn until you watch someone. Like I'll just learn some random CSS trick on a video that's actually about implementing, you know, Stripe into, totally. into like Jamstack apps. But I, I learned how to do this cool thing in CSS by watching that. Being vulnerable, but also you know, we're forever learning because the space is changing constantly. Yeah. So it's natural that we're going to have to fail at things every once in a while. So feeling comfortable in that is, you know, difficult, but sometimes kind of fun. So. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then how to Google is always a good skill to have. The art of Googling. It truly is an art form. It's just, it's a full skill that we have to learn. Uh, when yeah. Like yeah. 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 Like I usually put like the language I'm working in JavaScript and then it's like, you know, how to, <laughs> I had yeah. explained this to a student earlier, but how to remove a class from HTML using JavaScript, you know? Yeah, but even like the art of reading a Stack Overflow, oh, you know, yeah. that is the answer, like seeing who's upvoted what or if they're mm-hmm. in the particular stack that you're working in. So it's just, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, you can't get in a school scenario. So on the job learning has to happen. Yeah. You know, we can kind of model that, that it's stuff that everyone, even if they, you know, have a senior title in front of their job description. They're still oh, yeah. doing that. So mm-hmm. It doesn't make you any less of an intelligent developer or whatever it is. But yeah, it's good to remind yourself of that every once in a while, I think. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, make your shout out, Sia. What would you like the listeners to go check out? Well, I'm sure there's lots of things they've already checked out. Like if they're brand new, of course, like the, the free code camps and things like that. But um, I really like the MDN web docs. I think they're amazing. The Mozilla Developer Network. So whenever I Google things, I actually kind of look for their post first. I feel like it's more up to date and more modern answers and some great examples. Yeah, that's a good shout. Actually, that there's a skill in deciding what answer to read when you're searching yeah. and Googling too. So I will include that in the show notes for sure. Yeah, definitely. And I've actually been using their guides as like my textbook because they had a textbook, but it was like from five years ago for JavaScript. And I was like, I feel like JavaScript five years ago was very (laughs) different from JavaScript now. So I had like a few days to find a new, you know, quote unquote textbook. And so I'm using, they actually have like getting started with the web. So if you prefer reading stuff, Mm, I actually really like the guides and I can, um, it's not just the, like the, you know, like the API type docs. There's even one like getting started with WebGL. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. I'll definitely include all of that. That's really, really helpful. Thank you so much. Okay. So Encia, where can people find you online? Yeah. So I have a website at sia.codes and of course you can find all my links there it has blog posts and my speaking and workshop schedule and also I would say right now I'm probably most active on Twitter I'm at the green Greek on Twitter but if you know if that changes you can just check my website sia.codes and Uh, a strong yeah. URL, by the way. I was very impressed with that one. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. When I saw someone else got that, I got jealous and bought that domain. And then, of course, I had to build a site. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and advice with us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been really enjoyable to kind of reflect on you know, the past. Yeah. And how your story and your narrative got you from there to here. So I think it's very relatable. I think we all go through different roles in our lives. And so it's kind of fun to see how they all mesh together and help us achieve what we ultimately are set out to do too. So I, yeah, again, thank you for joining me today and I hope you have a great day. Thanks. You too. Bye. 
And that's a wrap on today's episode of We Belong Here, lessons from unconventional paths to tech. This week, I've got an exciting giveaway happening, a $100 Amazon gift card to share with a listener. Tag me at Lolo Coding on Twitter. That's L-O-L-O-C-O-D-I-N-G and share your favorite piece of advice you heard today. I'll pick a winner on the 18th of May. And as always, be sure to rate and subscribe anywhere you can find podcasts. And check us out next week for another story and lessons learned from an unconventional path to tech.